This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Father, take these words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them and take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. For we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. May be seated. <clears throat> Let me start with a bit of a confession. Well, first, a little bit of an explanation. It could be that many of you have not been worshiping in an Anglican church for a long time. If you have come from a more low church or non-denominational evangelical background, you may have noticed that we read quite a bit of scripture in our services, as many as four passages, an Old Testament reading or in Easter, uh, a lesson from the book of Acts, a psalm, an epistle reading, and a reading from one of the gospels. Ordinarily, the clergy do not choose these readings. We use an organized set of readings following a three-year cycle. We call this a lectionary. This practice helps preachers to avoid simply preaching on their favorite texts. It also allows all of us to hear a wide selection of readings from the Bible if we are regular worshipers in church. I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with lectionaries. Although I think that the particular lectionary that we follow is about as good as it gets. But there are problems with lectionaries. For one thing, it tends to break the Bible up into bits. I don't think, for example, that when Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians, he expected his readers to read a short passage, put it aside, and then come back a week later and read another bit of it. He expected his readers to read the whole thing through. When the New Testament writers wrote books, they expected people to read them as, well, books from front to back so that readers could understand connections between one part of a text and others. But an even more concerning thing about lectionaries is that those who compile lectionaries frequently leave bits out. The Bible is a big book, after all. We don't read from the Song of Solomon very often. But sometimes passages are left out because they are embarrassing or difficult to understand. Quite a number of lectionary readings leave out sections of text because they mention issues of sex or violence. Sometimes verses are left out because they are just difficult. Now for the real confessional part. I have this tendency, a morbid curiosity perhaps. When I notice that bits have been omitted, I gravitate towards those bits and try to figure out what worried the lectionary editors. And fairly often, I want to put those verses back in and then preach about those parts. After all, if the Bible is actually the Word of God, the whole Bible is actually the Word of God, we ought to pay attention to it. In the book of Genesis, the patriarch Jacob spends a night wrestling with a man, or an angel, or is it God? Jacob refuses to give in. I won't let you go until you bless me, he says. Jacob does get his blessing, although he gets a rather sore hip in the process. Sometimes hard passages in the Bible have to be wrestled with. 
but the wrestling can produce a blessing. And so today, I have changed the lectionary reading from 1 Peter, just a bit. The original reading, take your bulletins, uh, be helpful to look at. The, the first reading ends at the end, uh, the original lectionary reading ends at the end of verse 18. You may notice that that causes a problem. Verse 18 ends in the middle of a sentence. Why did the lectionary editors do that? Well, simple, I think. Verses 19 to 22 are some of the most difficult, controversial verses in the New Testament. People have been arguing about these verses for 2,000 years. When I read Wendy the passage that I'm going to preach on this morning, her response was, oh dear. Better not to open a can of worms, the lectionary editors thought. However, we only get to read 1 Peter at the Eucharist every three years, always between Easter and Ascension. And amazingly, the verses left out actually deal with the resurrection, we're in Easter season, and the Ascension. Ascension Day is this coming Thursday. Better to put them back in, I think, and then wrestle with them and see if they might give us a blessing. But since we're not reading all of 1 Peter today, which of course would be my preference, we should perhaps set the scene a bit. What is 1 Peter there for? At the start of his letter, Peter says that he is writing to a group of churches in Asia Minor, what we now call Turkey. And he says these words, to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. To the exiles of the dispersion. Although at least one prominent scholar thinks that these folks are literal refugees, that's what exiles means after all, most rightly see this passage as a metaphor Exiles are people who are out of place, who are not at home. In chapter 2, verse 11, he similarly writes, I beseech you as exiles and aliens. Father Kevin helpfully talked to us two weeks ago about the idea of Christians as aliens in a fallen and rebellious world. Like the word exile, an alien is someone strange, not native, a foreigner, an unusual species out of their so-called normal context. Uh, confession, another confession, I am an alien. I have a little green card that proves it. It says I'm an alien. If I was to become an American citizen, I would be naturalized. This means I'm not natural. I always figure that means I'm kind of supernatural, but I'm not. Christians, Peter says, are aliens, exiles, foreigners. In fact, says Peter in 2 verse 12, maintain good conduct among the Gentiles. Strange thing to say, because strictly speaking, most of his audience were actually Gentiles. But, and he spends some time explaining this, because they believe in Jesus, they have gained a new citizenship. Rather than being Gentiles, 
They are now members of God's people. You are a chosen race, he says, a royal priesthood, God's own people. Once you were no people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Their allegiance has changed. Their citizenship has been transferred to a new kingdom. But they are still living in the old world. They have not yet entered into their inheritance. And so they are now foreigners. They are exiles. The whole purpose of 1 Peter is to help readers, the first century ones and us, to understand how to live in this world. If we are exiles and aliens, how can we function in society? Because as Peter will go on to tell us, the environment is not exactly welcoming to exiles and aliens. The world can be a hostile place for Christians. Therefore, a good deal of 1 Peter addresses the problem of suffering. To be a Christian in the world will inevitably, to one degree or another, involve conflict with that society. Now, most scholars agree that a major persecution of Christians in Asia was still in the future when Peter wrote, although the persecution of Christians under Nero in Rome had already happened. Even if martyrdom was something that Peter's readers were yet to experience, it is probable that they had experienced misunderstanding, discrimination, harassment. What does today's passage tell us about these things? Well, the passage can be easily divided into three parts. The first part is an exhortation to love one's enemies. The second is an encouragement to be ready to answer when accused. And the third part is an explanation of how the death, resurrection, and ascension ground our faith and provide us with an example to follow. So first, the exhortation, verses 8 to 12. And again, you might want to follow along in your bulletins, or there are Bibles in the pews. Either way will work. Chapter 3, verse 8 says this. Finally, all of you have unity of spirit, sympathy, love of the brethren, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Actually, there's a bit of a problem with that translation. The first bit says, have unity of spirit. It actually says, have unity of mind. The five things Peter mentions in this verse begin and end with the mind. Have unity of mind and be of a humble mind. Peter begins this list and ends this list encouraging us in the way we should think. Unity in a community will be hard to achieve, well, perhaps almost impossible to achieve, unless there is humility. Pride rarely leads to mutual understanding. The mind needs to take on the task of understanding one another with humility. So Peter begins by urging us to adopt these five attitudes, especially to one another in church. But then in verse 9, he pivots 
to talking about those outside of the church. Do not return evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. And to this you have been called that you may obtain a blessing. Now, of course, it's possible that evil and reviling might happen within the church itself. Uh, I've seen it. Too true, I'm afraid. But in the context of 1 Peter, and especially of the verses that come, come later, it's likely that Peter is worried about attacks against the church. Peter's solution to receiving curses, slander, insults, and mocking is the solution he learned from Jesus himself. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus instructed his disciples not to repay evil for evil. Jesus said this, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus' principle of non-retaliation Father Kevin referred to a similar idea a couple of weeks ago when he talked about submission. Jesus' principle of non-retaliation has never been an easy road. In our society, Jesus' words might lead some of us to re-examine some of our habits. For example, is it really a good idea to comment, it usually happens anonymously, on blog sites when we are angry? Is it wise for Christians to have Twitter accounts, especially during election season? And in this country, it is always election season. Bless, do not curse, says Peter, echoing his master. Then in verses 10 to 12, Peter backs up his, his thoughts with an appeal to scripture. He quotes from Psalm 34. For, he says, he that would love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. Let him turn away from evil and do right. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those that do evil. The psalm asks, how can we find life? The answer is, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from guile. The epistle of James is eloquent on this point. The tongue is a fire, he says. With the same tongue, we bless God and curse our brothers and sisters. Animals can be tamed, but no one can tame the tongue. So rather than speaking and doing evil, Peter says, turn away from evil, but seek peace. Actually, the word for seek is quite strong. Pursue peace, he says. It reminds one of a race or a hunt. Hunt after peace, chase it down. Seeking peace requires effort and diligence. Why? Because God sees and God hears. His eyes are upon the righteous. His ears hear their prayer. 
Do you want answers to prayer? Seek peace. But the face of the Lord is against evildoers. God is not mocked. God sees. God hears. So that's the first part of this passage. It's an exhortation basically to love our enemies. The second part of the passage is in verses 13 to 17. Be ready to answer, Peter says. Be ready to answer. The first major section of our passage, uh, passage urges us to love even our enemies. The second major section prepares Peter's re- readers for the possibility of opposition. Verse 13 begins the section by stating what normal life should look like. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is right? This is what normal life should look like. Ordinarily, Peter says, you won't be harmed if you are zealous for what is right. Ordinarily. Verse 13 does not state an inflexible rule, just the norm. But verse 14 immediately qualifies verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing what is right? But even if you do suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Do not be troubled. The reality is the world is not normal. The world does not always follow the norms that one should expect. Verse 14 opens with a Greek word, but. Allah in Greek. But the blessed language has more than one way of saying but. There are basically two ways. One is to say de. De means, well, but. It's a kind of soft but. In fact, it could even be translated and in certain instances. Sometimes translators simply leave it out. This is not de. This is Allah. But it is what grammarians call a strong adversative. Sometimes, sometimes we need to say but with capital letters. But the world is not normal. But the people of the world do not always do the proper thing. But if you should suffer, the implication, you might suffer. You could. Perhaps you will suffer for doing the right thing. Actually, the word translated righteousness or the right thing in some translations could also be translated justice. If you suffer for doing justice, How many have suffered for advocating justice? Does your mind not immediately turn to Martin Luther King or to Nelson Mandela? It should, I think. The bishop I served under in Kenya in the 1980s, his name was David Gattari, was attacked, not just verbally, although often verbally, for advocating for justice. In fact, one of his fellow bishops 
named Alexander Muge, was assassinated by the government of Kenya for advocating for justice. But verse 14 also says that the one who suffers for justice will be blessed. But it doesn't say that the blessing will always be in this life. Verse 15, therefore, tells us that we must be ready. Verse 15, in your hearts, reverence Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. We must be prepared to give an answer to those who question us. One implication of this is that we should, as much as we can, think through our faith. Now, I'm not saying that everyone needs to be a systematic theologian. I am saying what we said at the beginning of the service, that we are to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our mind. We are called to love God with our minds as well as the rest of our being. The hope that we have in Christ can and should be explained. How, can that, how that explanation takes shape for each one of us may be somewhat different. For some, it may mean telling the story of how we came to faith. For others, it may involve careful step-by-step -step explanation. Sometimes it might involve saying, look, <clears throat> you are asking questions that I'm not sure how to ask. If your questions are serious, let's keep talking and I'll try to find out some answers that might help. Almost 50 years ago, I was an arrogant young religious studies student. And a friend of mine told me about uh, a young man about my age named Guy. Uh, Guy was dating uh, the daughter of a prominent Anglican rector in Toronto, and I was visiting Toronto at the time. And my friend said, you know, it might be really helpful if you sat and talked with Guy. He's not a Christian, but he has weird ideas. And Guy was open to it. So we sat in a coffee shop on Young Street in Toronto for about four hours and talked about Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which was his favorite book, which I had dipped into a bit, but I needed him to explain a lot of it to me. We talked and talked and talked, and at the end of four hours, Guy said, well, maybe you're right. Maybe there is a God. A year ago, I was in Vancouver. Wendy and I were in Vancouver. And we were told that one of the speakers at the conference we were speaking at was a guy named Guy Bellerby. And I said, Guy Bellerby? I know who Guy Bellerby is. It's the same guy. <laughs> he had become a Christian. He had gone to seminary. He had been ordained and was an Anglican priest in Vancouver. It was a wonderful to see him after almost 50 years arguing or defending the faith needs to be done at times. But, Peter says, do it with gentleness. 
It doesn't do any good to insult people we disagree with. It doesn't do any good to tell them they're crazy. Gentleness and argument don't always go together, but they can. Argument can be a congenial meeting of minds. Let me say this, it is possible to win an argument, but lose a person. It is true that some people don't come to faith or no longer believe because their experience of Christians has not been positive. In fact, there seems to be an epidemic of that these days. Peter goes on in verse 16, keep your conscience clear so that when you're abused, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing right, if that should be God's will, than for doing wrong. It is better to suffer for doing right than for doing wrong. In the end, and I do mean the end, God will make all things right. Vindication will come to God's people. Now we get to the third part of our passage, verses 18 to 22. Here, Peter gives the ground for our faith. As always, it's about Jesus. Let me reread it. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive. Then we have a translation problem. There's one word in the Greek, and it's translated by three words in English, but what three words? In your bulletin, it says, made alive in the spirit. I don't think so, but I'll come back to that. In which he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this now, saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers subject to him. The beginning of this most difficult section of our passage begins with the word for. For Christ also suffered. One scholar translate, translates it this way. This is because Christ also suffered. That is, the suffering of Christians finds his explanation in the suffering of Jesus. He died unjustly, just as some Christians might be called to suffer unjustly. But Peter also makes it clear that Christ's suffering and our sufferings are not the same. Christ suffered once for all. Christ suffered for sins. Christ's suffering was, in other words, a sacrificial offering although Peter doesn't explain all that, that, that he means by it at this point. The suffering of individual Christians is not the same as his suffering. He represented and became a substitute for others in a way that we cannot. But there is an analogy. If Christ, the righteous one, could suffer and die, we should not be surprised if suffering comes our way as well. Now the tough part. Christ was put to death in the flesh. That seems clear enough. His body died, Peter says. 
He was made alive, well, most translations say, in the spirit. What does that mean? Does it simply mean that he kept on living after the crucifixion? Is this a way of talking about life after death? Probably not. Think of Genesis 2. Adam came alive when God breathed into him. The word for God's breath in the Old Testament is ruach, often translated wind or spirit. When God's spirit came into Adam, Adam became a living being. Or think of Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel sees a valley of dry bones, dead corpses. They come alive when God's wind, his breath, his spirit blows on them and animates them. Here too, Christ became alive by the spirit. We are best to translate Peter as saying that Christ died bodily and was raised spiritually. He was raised by the Holy Spirit. This is language of resurrection, not of post-mortem kind of ghostly existence. Verses 19 to 20 goes on. In that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison. Peter does not mean that his proclamation happened during the time Jesus was in the tomb. The proclamation of Jesus happens after the resurrection. So who are the spirits in prison? Many have said they are the dead who refuse to listen to Noah. See verse 20. But why just Noah's people? Why, why preach to the dead just from that era? Why not preach to the Egyptians who oppressed the Israelites? Why not preach to your aunt and uncle who died without believing in Jesus? What about all the other dead before and after Noah? That's not the point. That's not what the passage is about. The spirits in prison are probably not dead people. The word spirit is not the normal word used in the ancient world, or at least in the New Testament, to talk about dead people. The word spirit is the word used in the New Testament to talk about fallen angels, evil spirits, fallen angels who transgress the boundaries between the visible and the invisible world. So what's this about in the days of Noah? Well, the story of Noah begins in Genesis chapter 6. But Genesis chapter 6 opens with these words. The Neph very strange words. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And afterwards, when the sons of God went into the daughters of humans who bore children to them, the sons of God, angels, in some mysterious way, Angels fell and spread their evil into the world in the days of Noah. It is those fallen spiritual beings who hear the proclamation of Jesus. He's not preaching in the sense of calling them to repent. He is proclaiming that their reign of terror on the earth is coming to an end. Christ is risen. He has trampled down death and the grave, and he has trampled over every evil power including, of course, and this is why Peter is talking about it here, including every evil spiritual power that stands behind the unjust structures of the world 
every evil power that might accuse and harass and discriminate against the church. The social and political powers of the world are creatures of God, but they are also fallen. And as fallen creatures, they have the potential of becoming idols that are worshipped. That is why baptism is so important in this passage. Baptism says we are dying to one way of life, dying to our allegiance to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And our allegiance is being transferred to King Jesus, the risen one, the Lord of earth and heaven, who has gone, read, ascended into heaven with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Jesus proclaimed victory, not to dead people, but to all the fallen spiritual powers of the world. In our baptism, because of the resurrection of Jesus, our future is assured. Because of the cross and resurrection, all the powers of hell have been vanquished. The ascension proclaims that Jesus reigns over all. In the ascension, which we look forward to celebrate in the coming week, we see Jesus enthroned as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And because he is King, we know that no power, nothing on earth or in the heavens can snatch us out of his hand. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the death and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus. Help us to follow his example and be willing to give an account, be willing to suffer, knowing that you have us safe in your hands. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.